I have been reading lately a, a very, very intriguing book which uh, focuses attention on one of history's most intriguing figures, uh, Attila, Attila the Hun. And in particular, this book takes a look at the death of Attila the Hun and the mystery which surrounds that, uh, the way in which perhaps uh, that event has not been told clearly and correctly uh, in official historic accounts. And uh, the gentleman... Uh, seeking to try to unlock uh, some of this uh, mystery is Dr. Michael Babcock, who is um, Associate Professor of Humanities at Liberty University in Lynchburg, uh, Virginia, and the author of a brand new book called The Night Attila Died, Solving the Mystery of Attila the Hun, published by Berkeley Books. A very intriguing book, which not only uh, grapples with this central question, of how and exact, exactly how and why did Attila the Hun die, but also really helps us grapple a bit with how history comes down to us, the different kinds of historical accounts which uh, we uh, will sometimes find ourselves studying and uh, the ways in which we can study them most effectively and make sense of what are sometimes uh, rather in- inscrutable and bewildering moments in world history. Dr. Michael Babcock. We welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you for having me. It's my, my pleasure. This is really, really interesting stuff that we are, are, are talking about. Uh, we should maybe begin with a, a, an overview for our listeners of uh, really who Attila the Hun was. I, I, th- I think he's one of those, those figures in history where m- so many of us know the name and have a vague notion, but maybe not a whole lot more. Of, of who he was and why he is important. Yeah, he, he's often, he still lives on in our, in our imagination today, though. Today you're likely to uh, see him in a, in a Saturday Night Live skit or hear him in a, a reference of so-and-so is acting like Attila the Hun or my boss is acting like Attila. And that's, that's the way he kind of lives on as a fixture of our, of our political vocabulary, in a sense. But there certainly was a time when he... 1,500 years ago, at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire, those last decades before Rome fell, when his name really meant terror, and, uh, and he was the embodiment of terror. And I think as we look back, you know, from, from the vantage point of, of this much time, a millennium and a half, I think that's uh, really what's maybe most, most relevant uh, in, in going through the hard work of thinking our way through history, in this case most relevant about him is that he he was in many ways the first international terrorist at least that's how from the roman perspective he was seen hmm. who were the huns the huns were a were an eastern people an asiatic people that had migrated a nomadic tribe and uh, they migrated from really the steppes of central asia uh... in uh... in the early early centuries of the christian era they uh... they were prevented from going any further east by the Great Wall of China, and so they, over time, migrated westward, and uh, they arrived uh, really on, on Rome's doorstep uh, from their point of view at the right time, when Rome was overextended and uh, unable to defend its borders effectively any longer. And they found, for a nomadic uh, people, they found that uh, the remote Roman provinces were pretty, pretty easy pickings for them, and that's where they uh, set up camp uh, in the area we know today as Hungary, and that was probably where Attila's headquarters were. And from there, they raided both the eastern and the western halves of the Roman Empire and did so very effectively. Hmm. Uh, 
One of the things which has intrigued you especially is uh, the, the mystery surrounding uh, exactly how Attila the Hun died. Um, I, I'm just curious, in terms of who he was and how he ruled, how much mystery surrounds that? I mean, how much mystery surrounds Attila the Hun's life? Well, I mean, as with all ancient historical figures and events, uh, considerable mystery does. I mean, I think we could say the same thing about uh, events that happen in our own lifetime. We still talk and debate about uh, the hows and the whats and the whys of, of say, 9-11, and there's considerable mystery about that. So uh, that's the nature of history. That's the nature of really the human experience of trying to understand events and causality and so on. And so I would say there's considerable his, uh, mystery uh, surrounding Attila, but, but far less probably than, than there is around uh, similar figures uh, in the remote past. And that's because we have some really good historical sources. We actually have an eyewitness account of a Greek historian who, as part of a diplomatic embassy, traveled to the very uh, home, the very camp of Attila the Hun, and uh, observed him across the dinner table, the banqueting table, and, and wrote in great detail about what he saw. And so uh, these are extraordinary sources that we have, and they give us a, a kind of full-bodied look, if you will, at, uh, at who Attila was. Having said that, uh, there's much we don't know about him and about uh, what he was trying to accomplish, and certainly the focus, as you said, of my book, uh, the circumstances surrounding his death. But uh, really to get at that problem, uh, you have to look at his life. You have to look at the Huns. You have to look at the circumstances of... Of the, of the late Roman Empire and the political dynamics. And that's really what I try to reconstruct chapter by chapter in the book. So it's really not just about the night Attila died. That's sort of the climactic focal point. But to get to that, you've got to wade through the history of the period, which, which is one of the most fascinating periods, really, of, of ancient history. It truly is. You talked about this one figure. Uh, how do we pronounce his name? Pris- Priscus? Priscus, yeah. Priscus. Yeah. And... and uh, his historical account, much of which is lost, uh, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, and then we have, ranging from, from sort of official history all the way to uh, accounts that end up being sort of folklore yeah. and legend, especially from some of the sort of, uh, some of the northern people and tribes of, of Europe. Well, yeah, and, and is, it's yeah, a fascinating is, juxtaposition. It really is. You have official Roman uh, imperial histories written in Greek and in Latin. And, uh, and then you have these legends that were passed down uh, in the tribes, the Germanic people, that were really under the thumb of, of uh, Attila's uh, p- political rule. And, uh, and, and so it really is very, a very different picture that we get of Attila, very different pictures of, of what happened both in his life and uh, at the point of his death. And so you've got to put them side by side. And what I really argue in the book is that these so-called official histories that were written cannot be given any greater degree of, uh, of, of credibility than these, these legends, because they're both shaped by the political dynamics and the needs of the people who told those stories in the first place. Hmm. Tell us the official account of how Attila the Hun died, and then uh, we'll talk about your skepticism about that. Yeah, that's really the, the big challenge that I, I set before myself uh, in the book, is, is to take on something that, that's considered to be pretty well established, namely that Attila the, the Hun died uh, of a nosebleed of natural causes, uh, flat on his back uh, in a drunken stupor on his wedding night, drank too much, lay down, passed out, 
hemorrhaged in the sinuses and drowned. Natural causes, end of the story. You, you can open any encyclopedia, any history of the late Roman Empire, that's what you're going to read. There's really no doubt about that. And I just want to say, I, I, th- I thought this was an interesting choice of words when you say that's the official finding of history, mm-hmm. the settled opinion of generations of, of scholars. It's yeah. kind of an interesting way to put it, and probably in a couple of different senses of the word. Oh, yeah. This opinion has been settled by by scholars, settled in terms of like a discussion, and yeah. maybe even settled in terms of like sediment settling to the bottom. Exactly. There's a, there's a lot going on in that metaphor, but I mean, even the legal uh, metaphor there, I think, is something that uh, that is developed throughout the course of the book, because it is a kind of legal case that I'm pursuing with evidence and, and arguing as, as a lawyer might, uh, uh, how credible the witnesses are and cross-examining them. And when you go back and you look at these ancient accounts and you read them carefully and you set them one against the other, uh, you see amazing inconsistencies, you see gaps, you see things that don't add up. And, and it's really the point of the book to try to configure a different, a different story that... Uh, uh, that uh, might be true about the night of night Attila died. You and talk about a hunch that, in fact, he did not die of natural causes but was murdered. Uh, if I read you correctly, your hunch preceded your careful study. It did, and uh, and I think that that's often the case uh, in situations like this, where something doesn't doesn't quite sound right. That the testimony is too rehearsed. That uh, the witnesses. Uh, um, are, are, are giving answers that are a little too pat. And, uh, and, and I approached it that way with that sense that there was, this was too much like a story, a story that was the edges are, have been smoothed over time through retelling and through uh, the political considerations of how that story should be told. And, uh, and, and so uh, many times a suspicion like that will then, will then be what motivates you to look deeper and look further and, uh, and, and to, to gather the kind of evidence that will enable you to, to really marshal a, uh, a, a, counter, uh, a counterpoint, a different view of what might have happened. And that's how I proceeded in this. Um, let me ask you, and you're certainly not the first person to do this, but uh, is it potentially a problem if one undertakes a careful study of something with a hunch already in, in place? Uh, I, I guess I'm asking... Uh, is it doesn't that open it, you up to the possibility of of um, sort of going out of your way to look for certain evidence and and maybe looking yeah. through evidence through through a certain shade of glasses? Oh, ab- absolutely. But I, one of the things that I, I I embrace pretty clearly in the book is my own subjectivity, and I think right. and, I, and I make a case that you have to do that. And historians who don't acknowledge that are are uh, really fooling themselves. And, uh, and, and I think we have to acknowledge that and then proceed as carefully as we can and consider the alternative uh, possibilities and the other evidence. And, and so um, obviously the reader can determine how well I do that or how fairly I do that. Uh, but but uh, that is something that, that you rightly point out and that I was aware of as I proceeded in, in this book. I love your, uh, your choice of terminology in calling this at one point the ultimate cold case. Yes. Uh, in that we're, we're talking about a death which occurred, uh, if my math is correct, over 1,500 years ago. That's right. So just through the, across the chasm of time, if, if nothing else, you're really taking on uh, quite a challenge and trying to, uh, to better understand the events of that event long ago. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's so much fascination today with, with forensic science and, you know, the phenomenon of CSI on, 
on, on television and uh, DNA evidence, the amazing kinds of advances that uh, even uh, forensic archaeology has made extraordinary strides in our understanding of the past. We don't have a body. We don't, we don't know where Attila the Hun was buried. Uh, we don't know what kind of information we could extract from that body if it were ever found. Uh, but uh, we do have other bodies of evidence, and those bodies are texts. And, and that's really the case I make, that we can, through the, uh, the close analysis of language and stories and the text itself, we can pursue a kind of forensic analysis of, of, of this homicide, as I term it. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Michael A. Babcock, and his new book is called The Night Attila Died, Solving the Murder of Attila the Hun. You have just uh, touched on uh, a type of science, which we should hear you explain a little bit further, namely that of philology. Uh, and you say uh, uh, someone once described this as uh, the, the science of reading slowly. Yeah. Tell us a little more about a, what a philologist does. Yeah, that was actually the 19th century German uh, philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who's, who described it that way, who was trained as a classical philologist. And, uh, and, he, and he really defines it very well, the art, the science of, of reading slowly, of, of listening carefully to the words, of, of trying to extract from the words and unlock from those words uh, the culture and the history that's hidden within them. And, uh, and that uh, certainly is, is what, what I've been trained in, and that's what I try to bring to, to this particular case. And in the process of, of the book, uh, one of the things I, I attempt to do is to lay out what philology is all about, how you take an, an ancient manuscript, an ancient text, and you, you compare it with other accounts. You look for the kinds of inconsistencies that will enable you to reconstruct an older, now absent form of what that story might have been. And so really the book does pursue that philological angle. And it's, uh, it's something that, uh, to feel the study that's not very widely uh, known or understood today. Hmm. We should talk about uh, another kind of overarching question because it informs so much of, of what your, your book is about. And that is the fact that uh, the line between history and propaganda uh, is a very vague line and, 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 and was especially so uh, back, back in these days. That's right. Yeah, no, no question and, uh, that uh, the official histories that were written uh, were written for a purpose. And, uh, and I think that we can approach this sometimes. I think the popular sense is to approach this somewhat naively to think that um, history is simply what happened in the past. Well, actually, history is what's written down about the past. That's the, that's the technically accurate way for us to consider what history is. And if somebody wrote it down, then somebody had to process that information through a whole series of filters. And when we're talking about the official imperial histories of Rome, both the eastern and the western halves of the Roman Empire, they had very good reasons to depict Attila the way they did, to depict him uh, with the terrifying aspect that he had, and and to project his death really as a humiliating one, to to depict his death as one not worthy of a great warrior, of a great leader, but one in which he was basically shown by the manner of his death to be impotent and uh, and and not in control in the end, struck down by God. And, uh, and that, um, that's something that when we approach ancient histories, as even when we approach 
contemporary histories. We need to be very, very careful, our ear very carefully tuned to what it is the author is is doing with the story that is being told. I really emphasize story a lot because the writing of history is really the telling of stories in that sense. And I think as you uh, quote the official account of, of, of how Attila died, you, you pull out of that a line in which uh, the, 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 uh, the writer in question sort of sermonizes for a moment and, and says something to the effect that and thus Attila the Hun sort of got what he deserved. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you say in, in a moment like that, uh, the writer is sort of revealing his hand and, exactly. and revealing to us what, what he's all about. Uh, right, right. Yeah, and, and uh, that, that is one of the reasons why we you know, talk about hunches again, why I had that skepticism way back uh, 20 years ago about this account. It seemed like it was making a point and making a point a little bit too strongly about Attila the Hun. And then as I began to research it in greater detail, I found other cases where figures were struck down by the hand of God in similar ways. And, and that raised some very serious questions about whether or not this was a story truly told about Attila or whether or not this was a kind of sermon illustration to make a point about what happens to the enemies of God? What happens to those who challenge the authority of God and his divinely appointed rulers uh, in Rome and in Constantinople? And, uh, and for me, the ultimate piece of evidence was when I was able to find in a sermon preached about oh, 40, 50 years before Attila died, uh, a sermon preached by one of the great patriarchs of, of the Eastern Church, uh, in, in which he describes exactly what happens to the man of flesh the man who opposes God. And in that sermon, uh, John Chrysostom was his name. Again, 40 years before Attila died, he preaches that sermon. And he says the man of flesh dies flat on his back, uh, the blood uh, uh, coursing from his head. And he describes it in ways that is remarkably similar to the official encyclopedia account that's come down to us about the death of Attila the Hunt. For me, that was like a, a eureka moment. And at that point... I felt that I, I understood a little bit better the, the nature of the propaganda that lay behind that particular ecclesiastical account of his death. Right. You, you, you just a moment or two ago referred to some of this writing as, in a sense, kind of heavy-handed in trying to drive home a point or a message or a moral to the story. Uh, I think at another point you, you, uh, you talk about how in, in some writing and in some of the paintings of, of Delacroix, for instance, and others, there is kind of a melodramatic depiction of this, what you call titanic struggle between civilization and the barbarians. Mm. And, uh, and indeed, then, if an account like the death of Attila, if, if that is overshadowed too strongly by this mission, uh, then, then it calls into, a, into question just just how accurate it is in oh, terms of telling us what happened. Exactly, but then that, that raises the question, why is it that historians haven't seriously questioned this before? Uh, there was a French historian a uh, hundred years ago uh, who, who toyed with the question, really, of whether or not this was an accurate account, but he never really pursued it as a research problem. And so others have questioned that uh, to some extent and have noted the same kinds of rhetorical patterns uh, that I'm referring to, the hyperbole, the exaggeration, the neatness of the narrative account, and so on. But uh, this is the first uh, thoroughgoing uh, reevaluation, really, of, of that story and its credibility. Now, just one quick point about that. Again, the question, why is it that historians haven't, 
haven't seriously questioned uh, such an exaggerated kind of melodramatic account. Uh, I think the, the one reason why they haven't is because the story is told by Priscus, that eyewitness account. Now, he was not an eyewitness of what happened to Attila, but he did record, as best we can tell, this account of Attila's death. And since he is such a trustworthy eyewitness account in so many other details, I mean, he, he minutely describes, almost like a modern historian would describe in very, very minute details. Uh, because of that, he, he has been granted a kind of a blanket credibility to everything he wrote, including this particular account. What I attempt to show is that Priscus, in addition to being a very good uh, eyewitness historian, he was also a propagandist. You couldn't, um, you couldn't not be a propagandist and write for the Roman emperor. Do I remember, though, also that uh, one of the most important points here is that uh, we don't have Priscus's account in its original form? That's correct. Uh, That's correct. Let's let's talk about that for a moment and and talk actually about how much of Priscus's original work is lost, how much of it comes down to us in original form, and for that that is lost in its original form, how we have it at all. Yeah, this is uh, really where, where it becomes a, a, very much a detective story in trying to figure out what happened to, to the account and whether we can reconstruct what the original account must have said. And I do make a case that we can reconstruct that Priscus, in addition to most likely telling the story of natural causes, that uh, he also told a story uh, of homicide. My argument is that 100 years later, uh, that story was purged. That story, that violent account of homicide, was purged from the record, and the only thing that la- was left was the the story of natural causes. And of course, I argue that that there were imperial reasons for that. That the message had to be conveyed that that he died uh, not uh, as a result of man's design and and conspiracy from the emperor, but rather he died divinely by an act of God. And that message needed to be conveyed to the enemies of Rome a hundred years later uh, in the various political difficulties that Rome found herself in at that time. Hmm. So uh, his original account does not actually come down to us. Tell us the, the form in which we, we, we have this account and, and, and how a lot of his uh, writing comes well, down wrote, to us. He was a Greek historian. He wrote uh, in Greek, and we have some of his account the the, 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 the majority of what we have of Priscus, this eyewitness account, is the detailed story of his journey to Attila's camp. And that's a fascinating story. It's available online. Um, if you just do a search for Priscus, um, you, know, you can find it very, very easily and, and, and read this remarkable. It's almost like he's uh, entering uh, his observations into a blog, you know, day by day. I mean, that's how fresh and, and, uh, and, and real it sounds when you read that. And so that, that's the majority of what's come down to us from Priscus. But he wrote uh, a several book history of his times, and, and almost all of that has been lost. And, um, and so some of it has is, is been preserved in various sources as others copied him and quoted him and so on. A hundred years later, uh, a Latin writer named Jordanes uh, quoted him and, and referred to uh, the account of Attila's death. My argument is that he uh, quoted him about the natural causes but didn't include uh, the story of violent death. Uh, but there are still some clues there in the text that we can tease out and, uh, and reconstruct what happened. One of the things you, you mention is that uh, we, we face the challenge of perhaps trying to draw out 
alternative voices mm. that have long been silenced. That's a very intriguing way to put it, mm-hmm. and, and, and no easy matter to accomplish. Yes. Oh, absolutely, but uh, that's the great challenge of history, and that's why we continue to write history. I mean, if you think about it, why do we continue to write history about uh, the late Roman Empire? I mean, there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of books written about this period and about these events, and yet we can still go back to it and tell the story again and, in a sense, tell a different story, and in so doing, to reanimate uh, voices, as I said, that have long been silenced, voices that have been suppressed within the historical record, and testimony that has been altered. And that's the great challenge, and, uh, and that's what really motivated me and excited me as, as I uh, pursued this, uh, this project, was to, to see how, how many and how much of those voices really could be recovered from the ancient record. Uh, one of the things you, you talk about, and one of the interesting features of your book is that it's split up into various exhibits, like you know, Exhibit 1, Exhibit 2, in terms of, 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 of sort of the, the bedrock points of your, of your investigation. Yes. You, uh, you talk about how this, uh, this account of Priscus, however it might itself be trustworthy, only comes down to us through uh, Jordanus and... Uh, you know, in a in a form in which it is has almost surely been, in your words, textually corrupted, mm. and uh, that's a, also a, a, an interesting uh, choice of words because it it can mean uh, a couple of things uh, at, at at the same time. Oh, sure, sure, exactly, and there there is that sense of uh, uh, of just the, uh, the the neutral sense, uh, if you will, of how of how a text changes uh, over time through copying, but also the uh, more sinister manipulation of, of the text itself. And I think both of those senses are, are applicable in this case, because um, obviously a source that's 1,500 years old has, has been cycled through many different uh, hands over time. But uh, there are also um, very good reasons along the way, as I point out, to change and alter uh, that text and to tell the story one way or the other. Right. You say that often uh, his historical writers carry baggage. Oh, I yeah. mean, that's not not a not a fancy way to put it, but uh, I, I think we know what you're what you're talking about. There, baggage of all all kinds of of, of different types. Oh, absolutely. And uh, and and uh, you can go to a great writer like uh, Gibbon with the uh, fall decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and and a great historian and a wonderful writer, but uh, he. He brought himself and his own subjectivity into into what he wrote, and I think maybe the uh, where we have a leg up on uh, on a great old master like Gibbon is that we're a little bit more ready now to acknowledge that, and that's kind of the postmodern consciousness I think that we bring to the writing of history as storytelling, that we understand a little bit better I think than one say in the Age of Enlightenment as Gibbon was that uh, history is not just what happened in the past, and if you just have enough facts, you can, you can lay it out there and there's no controversy. Uh, there's actually considerable controversy. You know, it's, I'm glad you, you, you mentioned Mr. Gibbon, because this is, a, I think, a particularly interesting point you make, that, uh, that his kind of writing, which is full of embellishment, mm. Uh, to, in your words, uh, sort of flesh things out with actual emotions, reactions, re- responses, I mean, to, to create dialogue that, that we have absolutely no way of knowing uh, actually occurred or not. But it, it gives history a kind of a flesh-and-blood quality, which would, uh, again, for the sort of amateur reader, I suppose, 
uh, or the unsophisticated reader would make it seem even more real and in an odd sort of way even more trustworthy when in fact we should read it just the opposite with a heightened sense of skepticism absolutely that's the the remarkable seductiveness really of storytelling that it has that ability to even as it tells the story with great embellishment the story becomes amazingly more credible because of those very embellishments and uh, and so again i think we're we're i I don't want to say that we're more savvy or sophisticated in that you know in, in every sense but i think in that sense i think we understand the nature of story better than, uh, than those who are steeped in the age of reason and who believed that uh, facts could be easily recovered uh, about the past. We've touched on the fact that whatever Priscus wrote uh, about the death of Attila only comes to, down to us kind of secondhand, and from there uh, that account has been, been, in a sense, further corrupted and embellished by, by other writers. Let's go, let's go back to Priscus himself and talk a little more about exactly who he was and, and the kind of person he was and the kind of, of, of writer that he was. As, as best we can tell from his writing, he would have been a fascinating conversationalist. He would have been a, somebody that would, you, know, you would have enjoyed having a, a, uh, lifting a, a mug of ale over a, across the table with him and, and sharing stories. He was a uh, a fascinating, intriguing, a very wryly ironic individual. Again, just judging as we can only from his from his writing. Uh, he was a, a minor bureaucrat uh, in the Eastern Roman Empire. Obviously, a very talented writer. He rose through the the ranks of the diplomatic corps, uh, probably because of his raw ability and uh, certainly some patronage as well. And uh, he happened to be at the right, uh, you know, in the right place at the right time to witness some amazing uh, events of history and to write them down and. And as we noted a few moments ago, the, really the only thing of substance of his that survives is this, uh, this, this spellbinding, really, account of Attila and this, this eyewitness picture, this portrait that we get of him, and uh, the political intrigue that surrounded the diplomatic mission uh, that he made to his court. If it weren't for that, the survival of that document, Priscus would be completely unknown to us, maybe a name in a, in a registry of names, but, but other than that, completely unknown to us. And, and uh, yet a remarkable figure in many ways. You said that he was writing at just the right time. I mean, he, he came along just as events were, were, uh, were, were uh, changing in such dramatic, uh, even spectacular ways. You say at one point in the book that in the year 453, which is the year Attila died or was murdered, yes. you say Rome was dying, but in the Roman provinces and beyond, the great nations of Europe were being born, yeah. and with them their historical and legendary heroes. That's another way, of course, for us to kind of grasp the significance of this moment in time, that, oh, that, yes. that the world is shifting in, in a way that, that was uh, uh, truly unprecedented. And that really is a, is, is a central backdrop, I think, to the story of the night Attila died, is to understand that larger political reality, that Rome was dying, and uh, in the remote provinces, uh, the nation-states of Europe were emerging. They had their own stories to tell. Some of those stories included accounts of Attila the Hun, uh, as well as stories of other great national figures, Patrick in Ireland and, and um, Clovis in France and so on. This is the period that we're talking about. So it was a remarkable period, a kind of a, a hinge of history, really, a great transition from one period to another. Do I remember correctly that this autobiographical account we have of Priscus in which at one point he actually meets Attila the Hun face-to-face occurred in 449? 
Uh, it, yes, it, it occurred at 449, uh, f- uh, four years before Attila's death. Yeah. One of the things you tell us about this uh, about this account, aside from the fact that it's just very, very interesting in and of itself, is the fact that Priscus seems to make interesting choices about what he's going to really dwell upon and, and, and the details which he will relate to us. And that uh, is, is, is probably something we should think about with, with, with other historians as well, that what they pay attention to or what they go out of their way to tell us about uh, has sort of double-edged significance beyond those details themselves. Oh, absolutely. The very process of selection is itself significant. The fact that you tell this story and not that story, or that you include this detail and not that detail, and you're absolutely right. That's, uh, that's part, of the, part of the challenge and, and the task of a historian is to is to try to think through that process of selection that an ancient source um, was making. And, uh, and Priscus is a very interesting case study in that. Uh, he seems to mention apparently trivial details and then passes over whole days of the diplomatic journey without mentioning anything that occurred. And, of course, that's my opening to make a lot of those details. Uh, they're all that we have to work with, and so if we're going to make make something of it, that's all we've got to work with. And so, um, as we do that, that's where the uh, the conspiracy, as I argue, really comes into focus. And we're able to to pinpoint some figures and some characters, and and identify some motives and opportunities that ultimately, I argue, led to the night of Tilladide. Hmm. At this point in time, describe for us the, the what was going on. Uh, between uh, the, what remained of, of the Roman Empire and Attila the Hun and, and, his, uh, and his forces? Well, uh, Rome was uh, really two empires at this point, uh, an eastern empire centered in Constantinople that was still thriving and flourishing in wood for another thousand years, and uh, a very, um, very bad-off western Roman Empire centered uh, not so much in Rome any longer but in the coastal city of Ravenna. Where the, em- where the emperors uh, at this point resided. And uh, Attila had uh, dealings with both halves of the empire. Uh, and uh, we really can't discern any sort of uh, grand geopolitical strategy in, in, uh, in, in, in what he did. He seemed to be a very impulsive figure, um, turning first uh, his attention to the east and then his attention to the west. But certainly one of his um, uh, ambitions was, was gold. And uh, the Romans tried to uh, to, to buy him off with tribute money, and that was only moderately successful. Uh, and, um, and so his dealings were political, they were economic, they were military, they were uh, social dealings as well, because he had, as part of his uh, inner cabinet, as it were, um, men who were Romans, Roman by birth. And uh, so he had many personal contacts even in the Roman Empire. He knew personally the great Roman general of the Western Empire, a man named Aetius, who was called by uh, contemporary historians the last of the Romans. And Attila knew him personally from, from their youth. And so it's a very complex uh, set of interconnecting interests that Attila had with, uh, with the Roman Empire. One fascinating little point of mystery uh, is that uh, Attila had a brother, Yes. Uh, Bleda, is that how? Uh, yeah, Bleda, an older brother. And, and you tell us it, there, there is really some, some, some big questions that surround just exactly 
how they ruled together or if they ruled together and 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 how the two brothers functioned yeah. but there's very good evidence that uh uh Attila uh, eventually murdered his brother yes he uh he was the young Attila was the younger brother and uh, and again this is where the the philological work uh really has to kick in because uh we're working with texts that are partial and fragmentary and uh we have to read significance into things as apparently trivial uh, as the fact that in the ancient sources Attila's brother Bleda is always mentioned before Attila. They're mentioned as Bleda and Attila. And a simple little detail like that suggests priority. It suggests that Bleda was the older brother. It suggests that Bleda probably had uh, slightly more authority than Attila had. And, uh, and we can discern that they were uh, brothers of very different temperament, very different personality. And again, there's some clues in the historical record uh, that, uh, that point us in that direction. Attila was strictly business, and, uh, and part of uh, business for him was uh, consolidating power for himself. Hmm. One of the things that's interesting about uh, the, the story of, of Attila presumably murdering uh, Bleda, his brother, is the fact that um, it tends to have been told when it was told uh, within the context of this overarching look at history. And and the and the two events seem to be uh, connected somehow. Yeah. This is one of the central pieces of evidence that in the fragmentary account that we have that's come down to us from Priscus, uh, the statement is made that Attila consolidated his power by killing his brother. He went on from that to conquering the world or attempting to conquer the world, and that he ultimately died uh, thus and so uh, on his back uh, of a nosebleed. And then the argument is, this is what happens. This is the just reward. This is the penalty. This is the payoff, as it were, the, the payback, I should say, for one who has done this. The connection is made between the death of Attila and the death of his older brother um, a decade or more earlier. Uh, and so uh, the argument, a couple decades earlier, actually, so the, the argument that, uh, that I make is that uh, we can reconstruct from this and other pieces of evidence uh, the plausible theory, really, that Attila's death was in part a revenge killing uh, for the earlier murder of his older brother. Particularly if Bleda was, as you suggest, uh, maybe the major figure of the two, at least for a time. Yes. Uh, it makes it all the more plausible that there would be people and maybe potentially powerful or dangerous people uh, with revenge on their mind. Oh, absolutely, and uh, those who surrounded Attila were drawn from, uh, his top lieutenants were drawn from the Germanic tribes that were under his control. Uh, he had Romans, as I said, who, who served him as secretaries and, and ambassadors, but he also had uh, Germanic chieftains. And for a Germanic chieftain, uh, there is no uh, greater calling in life than revenge. If somebody kills your, your lord, your master, your chieftain, you are obligated to, to pay that back uh, with blood. And, and so that, that's really the argument that, that I set forth. It's a, it's a plausible one within the cultural horizon of, of that period and that time. And the only thing that remained, really, was to find the textual evidence to point in that direction. Right, which you do in some very, very interesting ways. Uh, we don't really have time, probably, to get into this story in detail, but one of the most intriguing moments in your book is when you tell us about a misshapen uh, dwarf 
yeah. um, uh, a Moor by the name of Zerko. It's a, it's really a pathetic little story about uh, about a a hostage from North Africa who had been passed around uh, like personal property, which is how he was treated, uh, a, a trophy of war. And we can trace his uh, sad life really in the in the narrative of Priscus, and he ends up uh, at that banquet feast, that uh, diplomatic banquet that Priscus was at, that he witnessed in 449. And, uh, and Priscus gives us a, a detailed description of the, of the entertainment uh, part of the program at that, at that feast. And uh, one of the um, entertainers was a, was a, was a Moorish dwarf uh, named Zerko. And uh, he was uh, kind of like a stand-up comic. And everybody at the feast was just in stitches uh, with this man's uh, multilingual routine. And, um, and we can imagine, you know, that uh, he was speaking in various languages, and, and it, this was, of course, a multicultural um, uh, context. Uh, the Huns and the Germans and the Greeks, and many languages were spoken in the Tellus court. And so uh, it was a, just a, a hilarious uh, sketch from what Priscus relates, and everybody was laughing except for one, one person in the room, and that one person was Attila. Uh, he never broke a smile. Uh, he never never once laughed, and uh, was very serious uh, the entire evening. Priscus took particular note of that. It interested him very deeply. Hmm. And you eventually uh, draw the, the possible connection between um, this Zerko and, and someone named Edekon, who uh, you yeah. suggest maybe had some connection with Bleda because he took such interest in Zerko, who had been kind of... Uh, under the under the protection of Bleda before he was murdered. Yeah, this really points to the very circuitous nature of the evidence, and uh, uh, that that you have to follow the careers really of these figures and kind of connect up the dots and and see now what motive would this individual have and what connection did he have with this connection? And uh, as best um, we can determine, as I reconstruct, uh, it does appear that uh, Edicon one of the top lieutenants in Attila's cabinet, was originally a top lieutenant in Bleda's cabinet. He would have served Bleda as his master, as his chieftain. And, and Zerko really is the link, the connection, the piece of evidence that enables me to make that claim, the interest that Edicon had in the fortunes of Zerko, kind of looking out after him, as though he's looking out after a fellow member of Bleda's court. And so he becomes then a figure of great interest in reconstructing what I allege is the murder of Attila the Hun, uh, because he would have had certainly the opportunity. He was one of the uh, chieftains who was in control of the bodyguards surrounding Attila, and uh, he would have had certainly the means and he would have had the motive for, for knocking off Attila. And so, as I argue, as I lay out that argument, he conspired then with the Roman interests and uh, and a lot of people obviously were happy. Many people had motives to kill Attila. As we mentioned earlier, in, in addition to some of this writing, which sort of comes to us from the south, there is also a much that comes from the north uh, in terms of of Germanic legends and Scandinavian legends and 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 so on, and uh, and a great deal of, of 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 poetry as well. In fact, you say one of the great ironies in all of this is that here you have this figure Attila the Hun who uh, had such control over and, and a grip of terror over so many people. And once he's uh, dead, he is at the mercy of a handful of poets right, who can yeah. construct all kinds of things uh, about him. Oh, and they had sordid tales to tell about him. 
Uh, and, uh, and then this is really an interesting thing to trace the, the legends, the medieval legends that were told about Attila. Uh, and they were very diverse. Uh, in the north, among the Scandinavian people, <clears throat> among those who settled Iceland in the year 1000, even went on to settle Greenland. Stories were told for many hundreds of years, as long as a thousand years uh, after Attila's death. And they, they painted a very, uh, a very brutal and terrifying picture of, of Attila. Uh, and uh, and in those accounts, he dies um, of of murder. He is killed, but not by uh, those who who I am alleging in in the book, but rather he is killed by his wife. And so that is one of the one of the main um, accounts that has come down to us. One of the legendary accounts. But I argue that even there, there's a kernel of truth in that. There's the recognition that he didn't die the way the Romans said he did. That the circumstances of his death were uh, a lot more sinister. Uh, than uh, than a drunk man dying on his back. Hmm. Yeah, at one point you talk about uh, the raw material that philologists have to work with uh, in in this particular case with epic poems and legends and so on is the end product of a chaotic line of transmission. I mean, the fact that it's often shared uh, sometimes between cultures and d- through different languages, and 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 of course the fact that so much of it's orally transmitted and, and, and in no other way, uh, this gets to be very, very complicated yet fascinating stuff. Yes, it, uh, it, it takes patience, and that gets us back to that definition of, of a philologist as one who reads slowly. And uh, sometimes people, uh, I, I think a little naively think that what that means when they hear a phrase like that, reading slowly, uh, they may think that, oh, what you're doing is reading into the text. And, and my response is, rather, no, it's reading out of the text. It's reading out of the text what's in there, but, uh, but latent, hidden, suppressed, uh, animating, as we said earlier, those voices that have been uh, silenced long ago. And so, yes, it's a, it's a very, uh, very complex uh, set of facts and, uh, and, and data that we have to work with. Uh, connecting the dots is not, not an easy thing to do, but it's a... Uh, it's it's a fun challenge, and it is a kind of intellectual detective uh, story to pursue. Hmm. Well, there is a lot that remains in this fascinating story and in your fascinating book, which I encourage people to read. Again, it's called The Night Attila Died, Solving the Murder of Attila the Hun. It's published by Berkeley Books and the author, Dr. Michael Babcock. Dr. Babcock, I really enjoyed reading this book, and and I learned a lot uh, talking with you as well. I thank you for your time and wish you the best. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.